This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate to have John Kelly, CEO of Cirrascan, on uh, the show today, and I think you're going to be fascinated by the story. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, Bob, thank you for having us on. It's really an honor to be on here and be able to talk to your listeners. It's a terrific opportunity for us. You know, you and I have now talked, I don't know, quite some time. Uh, I, I'm a fan to start with, but um, for the folks that don't know what Searscan is, could you give them a thumbnail sketch of, of your company and who you serve? In the United States, we're arguably the best company in the country that takes patient information regarding certain brain disorders and combining that with other factors in their life to be able to come up with something that's predictive or a good diagnosis for whatever their problem is. And we are the best at doing that. So, you, you know, for the, the folks that are interested in, um, in the technology space, you know, what are the tools that you bring to the table to arrive at the data that you collect? Bob, you know, it's really kind of funny. We, um, we have imaging. We're an imaging company. So people know about MRI, CT, and SPECT, and PET. All of those uh, acronyms are about machines. But those machines kick out information um, in the form of imaging or, or things people might call it x-rays, but these, these machines kick out imaging. And when you have the imaging side of things to be able to look and see what's wrong inside of the brain, you had then have the ability to start correlating that to life events, to pharmaceutical kinds of things, to genetic uh, predisposition for certain conditions. So we start combining all that information and it's been available uh, for a number of years in, in each of those categories. You know, we were chatting before, and, you know, there's there's a notion of what you guys do, you know, and, and there's the machinery. It's like we've all seen on TV. It looks like a big donut that they put you through on a table. And I, I think the part that was not apparent to me was the quantity of data that's produced. And you had an analogy from the data produced versus some of the other data that's collected around on the planet. Can you draw the parallel between the data that you collect on, I think it was on the PET or the SPECT? Yes. So the kinds of information we will get out of cameras uh, start approaching millions of data points per brain. And when we're able to combine that with data around pharmaceutical usage, around blood types, proteins that might be in the blood, genetic information, and testing data, we're combining millions of pieces of information and on the fly or instantaneously being able to correlate all that to see if there's commonality across all of those data elements. It's truly a supercomputing capability that we possess today. You know, and, and you were talking about the Hubble telescope as an, as an analogy. And so the Hubble collects not images. You know, we all see the fantastic pictures that they come up with, but that's a result of data collection, is it not? That's correct. So Hubble really uh, is a phenomenal piece of technology that's taking infrared light, invisible infrared light, is taking ultraviolet light, is taking other light spectrum, and having other sound wave kinds of information coming and being aggregated at Hubble. And that information then is converted for the human so that the astronomer can look at that and see a picture where there was no visible uh, information as, as we know it. It's being recreated by the computer so that the human can see what those technologies can pick up from 
looking at other constellations or other planets or stars, st solar systems that might exist in the universe. You know, as, as, as we sort of um, transition from this is what it does. So it takes the data and makes us a picture. And then as humans, we're visually cued. And we go, well, here's, here's a, a disparity from one point to the other. And then for, for you guys, it's not just that data that you have. You also have your, your patient data as well, correct? That's correct. So all data is important. And having all available patient data, and the patients generally uh, allow us access to that in a very HIPAA security-compliant uh, way, and that it can't be used in a public, um, any sort of public way where it could hurt the, hurt the patient. Uh, we're able to take and aggregate that information so that you're looking for common problems across uh, groups of patients. So if a patient were exposed, let's say it's Flint, Michigan, to lead, it would be important to take a look at all patients who might have been exposed to lead in Flint to look for commonalities. So you're looking for heterogeneous and homogeneous kinds of data sets in order to make some intelligent guesses or intelligent information-based ideas about what problems might exist as a result of something like the lead poisoning event. You know, for, for you guys, we were talking about some of the, the, the challenges with data, and you guys have enormous data. Um, Correct. I, I don't know how to characterize the quantity of data or data sets that you have from patients, but it's in, I guess, the, the thousands or... It's actually in the millions, but uh, it's a lot of information. And information and data doesn't mean much unless you can get intelligence out of it. So just having a lot of data is nice, but you really want to have systems that can pull out some intelligence to get the information to the doctor or to the clinician or to the parent where they're able to take that data, convert it into intelligence, and do something act actionable. In the case of the brain, it could be a treatment. It could be a retrospective look at what might have happened to get the patient where they're at today. And it might be something where you can take that information and help others. For the folks that we've now just been through science for a while and, and statistics and data, um, let's say that somebody's listening and they go, so how would I know that Seroscan is a, is a place I should go and, and or talk to my doctor and go see? What types of things... Do you guys observe when you bring a patient in here, and what kind of things can you conclude when you see them? Well, the brain is really a sophisticated organ, as we all know. It's arguably the most powerful known computer in the universe. With that comes complications. And for people who are looking for solutions to problems, things that are disorders, how do you fix a problem if you don't know what it is? So our main mission is to go out and help doctors figure out what are the likely issues that do exist. And there could be more than one. You could have more than one thing wrong. So if you know what those are, then you have a chance to go back and try things that are proven scientifically to be able to fix a problem. They could be as simple as diet change or it could be a pharmaceutical regimen. And you might be able to get enough information to try something that's on the cutting edge of repairing a problem. And people who are suicidal are clearly looking for something that, you know, you can sustain life. At the end of the day, we're really a quality of life company. Can we help medical professionals, 
family members set up a scenario where a, a patient suffering from brain disorders can have a quality of life that is back to what they used to have before something may have occurred, or in fact, give quality of life uh, before a disease takes over. And, and an example of that would be Alzheimer's. Can we help uh, prolong a quality of life by doing the right kinds of therapies or preventative medicine that sustains a better, a better environment for them as compared to this steady decline into oblivion? And I have it in my family, so I'm keenly interested in the Alzheimer's aspects of what can we do to identify and what can be done as early as possible to keep this disease from making life miserable for everybody. You know, we we were talking before, and of course, you know, the things that are in the headlines are are the returning soldiers, you know, that have you know some form of brain injury from a concussion, or they hit an IED, you know, or or that. And and we talked a little bit before the show um, about typical things that older technology would see and the things that this newer technology might point out. Can you dig into that a little bit for maybe maybe we'll have sure. some soldiers listening? Yeah, and as a prior service I, a person, I was drafted as well. So a lot of my peers, and this is during the Vietnam War era, and I've watched a lot of my peers, um, you know, go to, mainly the alcohol route, but a lot of alcoholism. And, you know, what happened to them? <clears throat> it didn't happen to me, but what happened to them? So three big buckets that are generally categorized in the military. You have the thing called traumatic brain injury or chronic traumatic brain injury that's generally related to concussion events where the brain sustains damage and doesn't seem to repair fully. You have a thing called PTSD, which is generally attributed to psychiatric set of conditions that can result from stress of deployment, so on and so forth. And then we're running into a new area that uh, is, has alarmingly uh, been more prevalent than what anyone thought, and that was around toxic poisonings. For, so for the military people who are involved with burn pits, I uh, may have been in the warrant officer helicopter area where uh, kerosene fumes come back into the, uh, into the aircraft itself, or for folks who are, are doing plastic explosives or handheld devices that kick out uh, propellants, we're seeing a high correlation of things that are related to PTSD or even TBI, where in fact the brains of our military personnel are, are being basically poisoned over time or, or an environment where those chemicals get inside the brain and tend to uh, lodge in there permanently and create very psychiatric-like symptoms. It's been an alarming thing for me to see, um, and I would draw the analogy of Agent Orange from my era, that took years to manifest itself in many cases, and, and unfortunately, you know, cancer-like kinds of uh, things. But these chemicals in a hazardous um, environment, such as our military people have gone through, can in fact be, be very impactful. And people need to be aware of the fact that it might not be PTSD and it might not be traumatic brain injury. You know, it, for the folks out there going like, huh, well, you know, I either have a friend or it's me or a relative, and we've been at war for, what, 20 years? Yep. And the incidents of certain behavioral things stick out. And so if you're the listener or friend of some, perhaps somebody that's got those things, what should, you know, how do they find you guys? What's the best way for them to reach out to you guys? I think the going to our website, mm -hmm. which is www dot Sarascan, and it's C-E-R-E-S-C-A-N dot com, 
is a very informative website with short videos that do address things like traumatic brain injury, toxic poisonings, and get into suicides, ADHD, and bipolar. It's very informative. Uh, primarily medical doctors, very accredited doctors will talk in common English. That would be the best thing to do. For the military personnel, um, the efforts that we've made over the last five years have really been to how can we get what we do to the, the normal human being? And we have been successful as of late of securing s certain insurance reimbursement for civilian and military. TRICARE in the western half of the United States through UHC would be an example of that for traumatic brain injury. And we've had success with Blue Cross Blue Shield in Texas, United Healthcare in Colorado. We're having to work our way systemically, logically, methodically, factually through the insurance companies so that reimbursement becomes a reality for the patient. And in the military, it could be their family too. Your son or daughter could be have sustained an accident on a bike and, you know, and it might be nice to know, you know, if those concussion symptoms sustain themselves and are they permanent, what might you be able to do with that with good information? You know, and, and for the, you know, let, let's say that there's somebody out there that's going, yeah, you know, this would be, this would merit further exploration, but is diagnosis all that happens. You guys also have have seen the value of, of uh, certain regimens to take and offset some of the symptoms? Yeah, that's correct. So, again... What do you do? Um, how do you fix a problem if you don't know what it is? That's number one. Number two, as we've seen now, um, nearly 4,200 patients who've come through our sites around the country, uh, finding out commonalities of problems has had the wonderful impact of saying what could be done to prevent. So we've had to go forward in order to go backwards. Backwards means how do I... How do I uh, best uh, put into, into place things that can prevent problems? So things like Alzheimer's, early identification, clearly you today the, the medical industry would argue the right kind of diet, the right kinds of food, don't smoke, fish oil, so on and so forth. So if you had a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease, we were showing impairment early on for that. You might want to be able to go back and say, I'm going to take preventative steps that could increase my quality of life. And I'm using that as that disease as an example, but that would also pertain to things like after impact of birth trauma, uh, things like toxic poisonings, uh, identification of people who are suicidal. I know there are commonalities among people who are suicidal, things you really shouldn't do, treatments, pharmaceuticals, what have you, that could produce a bad cauldron that could put a person on the edge. Having that information and giving that to doctors, for them to do something creative, medically sound, proactive, and done before a disaster takes place, like a suicide, to us is very rewarding and is breakthrough um, in the medical world today. You know, we've chatted off and on on a couple of calls, and I'm clearly a fan, you know, and, and I think about you know, the challenges for adoption and, and of course, the, you know, our medical regulatory authorities um, have their procedures going through. And, you know, for what I usually will ask this question, instead of it's such a great technology, why doesn't everybody know about it? Why do you, what do you think the reason that people don't know about this would be? 
Well, we're a small company. We're not Johnson & Johnson. So we have all the, the challenges of a small company of getting that message out. We don't have the money to get on television. And, you know, and fortunately, shows like this really help us spread the word. But we don't have the, the money to go do a broad brush sort of um, advertising or promotional kind of thing. So that's impediment number one. Number two... It was cash pay. So when um, I had the opportunity to take over as CEO, it was cash. And you're talking about a few thousand dollars to do all the things that I've described. Well, not everybody has pocket change of a few thousand dollars. So the next step was, let's see if we can make this uh, less cash intensive to the people in need. So our path to insurance has been one way to do that. And there have been foundations and charitable organizations who have helped. So that we're trying to address that that one. And the third is, how do I get to the site? And initially, we started in Denver. Mm-hmm. We've now expanded to Southern California, most of the central part of Texas, Dallas, Houston, Corpus Christi. We're in New Orleans. We're in Naples, Florida. Uh, we are um, in Chicago. Uh, we're in Alabama. So we try to expand our capabilities through other very highly rated medical institutions where, in fact, they can take and put Sarascan embedded in their business there. So we're expanding the accessibility of what we have, trying to take costs for the, for the normal human being out of the equation. And by the way, I feel very strongly from that, about that. I'm from a small town in Missouri. My family and peers, you know, wouldn't typically have the, the monies to go do what we do. And I would like to see this get so that it's not the purview of the rich, but it's, the, it's available to everybody who's in need. And when it comes to mental disorders, there are a lot of people who are in need that can't afford it today. You know, we see that on the news regularly, you know, where there'll be a higher incidence of, of one t- brain disorder versus another, you know, whether it's um, autism or Parkinson's perhaps in some locales and others. You know, how do you see... Cirascan over the next four or five years interfacing with providing data perhaps that will start to attack those problems. Uh, Bob really pointed out something that's exciting for us that really portends the potential for Cirascan and its partners to, to bring solutions to people. Um, and to validate that, the Ohio State University, if I don't say the, they get angry with me, but the Ohio State University and their bioinformatics group has teamed up with this, a group that supports um, uh, the Department of Defense and particularly through the three-letter agencies has teamed up with a six-month effort to do data analytics. And we are now working our way through other partners, through both universities and other practices who want to team up to make a difference because we can't do everything ourselves. And the objective is to get this propagated into um, into facilities around the country so that everyone has that opportunity to avail themselves of what we do and that we're getting the best in other um, ancillary or um, adjacent companies that can propel it forward. An example of that would be <clears throat> getting DNA information. Um, it would also be proteomics, meaning what proteins are in your blood. A simple example would be if I have a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's, I'm showing from a testing perspective that I've got cognitive decline in an area. Let's say you're 
having a hard time with mathematics, remembering numbers. And we're showing from the imaging side that you've got decline in functionality in that area and that you've got a protein that's associated with Alzheimer's. You now would have five data points that would give a doctor a fairly strong opinion that you are, you're on a downward slope in this very nasty dementia. So having that early, then what can you do about it? And if we can get enough people who can identify it early, maybe we'll find out that there are treatments or body of treatment that can help slow down the progression of that disease and hence the quality of life that I talked about earlier. Yeah, we, were, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the toxic poisoning from yeah. exposure. And you know, we talked about Flint, we talked about propellants and so on. So for, for the legal community, that's out there and, and listening. How does CIRASCAN interface with the legal community or how do they, I understand they use your services. That's correct. So if you think about the rich data that we produce and because it's done so consistently in a very objective way in a supercomputing environment, sometimes identified as artificial intelligence, that would be a little bit of a stretch at this minute. The uh, objectivity of that is appreciated in the legal community by both sides uh, of the, of the uh, litigation piece and the judges themselves and the juries. So when a person has a legal case, we provide objective data for both sides to be able to analyze as to whether or not there are issues. In the case of toxins, it's something that had not been explored a ton. So you have a problem with carbon monoxide poisoning. It could be occupational, could be painters, could be car mechanics, it could be military personnel. You have uh, things like mercury poisoning, environmental from from uh, industrial side of it. Each of those um, toxins have patterns that we're showing that attach to certain regions in the brain. And we're getting large enough numbers now to say mercury goes here, carbon monoxide goes here, lead goes here. And when it goes there, <clears throat> it resides in the brain, and the functionality of that area begins to decrease immediately. So if the functionality of that area of the brain is known, and it is known that there was a toxin there, you begin to get a match of saying, I have symptoms that I can directly relate to that exposure to that toxin to that area of brain, which is supposed to be responsible for a particular function. And the good news is there might be other things you might be able to do with it. There's chelation. There are, there are approaches that a doctor or a medical team can to say, how do I get those heavy metals out of there? And that's what chelation does. Yeah. How do I get these um, free radicals? Or how do I get this stuff out of there? And there are techniques that are now being produced that might, in fact, be able to wash those out of your system, so to speak. So there's hope. So not only is it factual and can be used in the courtroom in an objective way, there, in fact, may be solutions where they might be able to get back somewhat of a normal life. That's a, that's a grand slam. It's an end-to-end process for us, and the patient benefits, the law firm benefits, the court system benefits, the case is faster, and there may be a solution at the end that isn't just about the settlement, but it's about being able to, to get back to normal. We were talking about that a little bit before. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, we can prove that you have this, and the spouse is looking at the person that has whatever that is, 
and go, that's nice. And yes, they, they, we might have gotten a monetary settlement, but I'm still, you know, I still have the person that has the problem. And I think the thing that resonated with me is that, yeah, you may have a problem, but, we, you know, if we can identify enough of them, maybe we can start providing solutions. So you get your former spouse back. And that's, you know, you know, I, I think about, and I'm watching you, right, as you were talking about this part, and you get fired up. I do. About making a difference, you know, and, and you know, within the company, um, touch on that a little bit. Why, you know, why do you get so fired up about this stuff? You know, I've, I've been asked that question several times, and I have been very fortunate to have great teams. I've helped pick some of those teams, and I've been part of a team. I've had terrific private and public company experiences as a leader, CEO, a board member on some very exciting companies. And hardly any of them have, have not had success, either being acquired or something like that. Um, so that's rare. But what occurred with this company is something that's way different than anything that ever happened to me in my life with all this, those successes. And that is that as I stepped into this role from a CEO that passed away, we were able to see very clearly that we can make a difference in people's lives. And when does that happen? When does that happen with any individual? And all of the great jobs that I've had, the company's been great, the customers have been good, the partners have been good, but I can never say for certain that on an everyday basis that we change lives. We may, may the doctors may have helped save a life. We've seen over 220 people who are suicidal thoughts, suicide ideation, meaning they planned it, and then suicidal attempts. We're already starting to show patterns in the brain combined with prior life experiences, prior to pharmaceutical, illegal or legal drug usage, and um, how they may be treated in their life, showing patterns that start being somewhat predictive of a doctor looking at it saying, this is a bad path. We need to change this formula that we're doing here because others have gone down this path and, and it's not been good. So that data side of it that we have, which is, flows into my background, ends up teeing up, making a difference in lives. And for the military, where you have 22 suicides a day, and there are a heck of a lot more in the civilian population how would you, Bob, like to be part of a group that could start really, truly giving doctors and caregivers the ability to stop and preclude suicides? Yeah, That's making, huge. Yeah, making a difference. It's a difference, you know? And the same thing on these toxins. We get exposed to them all the time. How do we understand that early on? Uh, what about the diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? We've talked about that. What about quality of life? And another would be this crazy growth of ADD, ADHD diagnosis and the drugs associated with that. Clearly, they, they, they work. But how about if you don't have ADHD, but you really have had your brain bruised at birth or you suffered repetitive concussions as a youth in something that shows that your frontal lobe is damaged and it's not going to respond to pharmaceutical, but could respond to other kinds of treatments such as hyperbaric chamber, infrared light, transcranial stimulation, and the like, where you can, you can help the brain repair rather than drugging it for a problem that probably doesn't exist. We're seeing that, and we're seeing that in well over 1,000 kids, kids defined as 6 to 18. It's making a difference. 
we talk about a lot of things that we don't talk about on the on the podcast prior to the show, you know, and and you know I have some family issues with with brain trauma and and others and and you know learning disabilities and and you know we're both pretty passionate about it and and yet it seems like in the medical community they're slow to adopt, slow to move. So if you're a physician that's listening to this. How, how would you recommend a physician start to try to assimilate some of the stuff that you're talking about? I'd like to have the physician come in through the web portal. And uh, if I'm a physician, I want to talk to a doctor. I want to, I want to hear another opinion. And we have six top-tier uh, nuclear med docs, neuroradiologists, radiologists, who are happy to share their experiences and what they're seeing. They do doc-to-doc consultation. So after Sarascan gets all this data and information and predictive analytics, then uh, the doctors who do the reads consult with the pediatrician, the DO, the psychiatrist, the neurologist. So the dialogue that goes on between those doctors is where the special sauce is, meaning the doctor who does the read says, look, I'm seeing these trends. Here's the experience I've seen before. Here's what happened with others, the doctors, and the patients. What worked? What didn't work? Let me give you my observations. And the treating doctor can take that information and do personalized medicine. Every brain's different. Every brain should probably, in person, needs to be handled differently. And getting the bulk of the doctors who do a great job of working with the patients, giving them all the information where they can ask the questions and they can probe around to see if there's you know, is the person really telling me the truth? Are they using drugs that could be damaging like meth or some opioid issue that could mask the, the real problem? It gives the doctor the ability to, to do a better job, a higher quality job, and maybe get the patient, you know, to go down a pathway where they can stop or repair what they've been doing. You know, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. We were talking at length about concussion and you know, concussion for me means I bump my head into something and I don't feel real yeah. well. But there's multiple types of concussions and locales and effects within the brain and others. Can you kind of go through the discussion of the various types of concussions and why that's important? Well, I'm a, a historic uh, big data, telecommunications, software exec. One of the... Um, areas that um, I have some grounding in is electrical engineering. Now, I was a very mediocre electrical engineering student at the University of Missouri. Um, Missouri had electrical engineering? They did. (laughs) (laughs) But I wouldn't, they wouldn't hold me up as an example. But my point around this as an engineer, how do we approach concussions or other kinds of things, but concussions from an engineering perspective? So, you hear people go, hey, I had a concussion. What kind of concussion was it? Did you have where you hit the windshield in a car accident, so you had a blunt force kind of a concussion? Uh, were you in a car where your head never hit anything, but you had severe whiplash because you were going 60 miles an hour and your head whipped back and forth? Were you in the military where you had a, a blast and a shock wave move through your brain? You have all sorts of engineering dynamics that occur with each of those that are different. And the brain responds just like any other engineering um, material. It reacts, it vibrates, 
It bounces back and forth. It tears. It shears. So when someone says it's a concussion, did your blood vessels tear so you got bleeding in your brain? Or did it smash together and you got compaction? Did a shockwave come through and rattle the very core of your brain, some of the older parts of it that are causing problems? Were you in a Humvee that got hit from the bottom and inside of your inside of your cab, it compressed like a like a tomato can would be compressed. So you've got pressure that that hits that brain. So understanding the engineering dynamics of that brain, begin to set up data and information that should lead to more uh, precision medicine. Which thing is the best technique to use for this concussion? Is it rest? Is it diet? Is it hyperbaric chamber? What kinds of things do we know that best respond to the damages inside the brain? You just can't say concussion. And I go crazy when I see, well, they've had concussions. What kind of concussions? It's like saying, I've got cancer. Really? Where is it? What kind is it? Is it in your lung? Is it in your stomach? What kind of cancer is it? And it's the same thing applies to concussion. What do we know about it should set the table for better treatment, and then we can share those treatments if they're successful with others, because there's over 2 million concussions in the United States, according to the Center for Disease Control, that happen every year. So there's a lot of people out there with chronic concussions that we might be able to share treatment. Because what is there, 340, 370 million people in the United States? You know, 2 million doesn't sound like a lot until you go, well, that's almost 1% of the population, 7 tenths every year. That's correct. And we tend to think about the NFL and athletes, and certainly that's a market that needs to be addressed for their occupation. But most are on the job. Uh, Their vehicle, whether that's motorcycle or cars or whatever, and then you have the whole um, accidental kinds of things. The guys that fall off a ladder. Correct. Lots of those guys. Lots. Yep. And, And we can help them. And it's sharing that. It's, it's having a national repository of proper identification, what's called cohorts in the medical world, but patients that look like me. And then what happened? Who did something that's consistently good or very innovative that made a difference? And Sarascan doesn't treat anything. We just set the table for the people to say, let me, let me do the best choice or best choices. And so let's see what happened. And that feedback loop back to the doctor in Tacoma from a success in Norfolk, Virginia, we can make happen instantaneously. You know, I, I think about the professional athletes that may be listening, and there's been enough press. You know, and, and whether it's the NFL or whether it's hockey or baseball or any of the, even professional, I would consider college athletes professionals as well. You know, how would they reach out to you if they have some concerns? Well, they should, again, come in directly to us. Um, If I were a professional athlete, and I could argue um, collegiately as well, I I played baseball at the University of Missouri and suffered a significant concussion um, slamming into a pole and trying to catch a line drive unsuccessfully, Um, get a baseline. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do baselines and everything. We do, at my age, colonoscopy baseline. We're doing those, I think, at an early age it would be important to have baseline. And I, and I think that's generally being accepted more and more in the medical profession. But find out what your brain is like before you have these instances and then compare. Because you could have, you know, whatever the number is, 80% of the time the brain repairs itself. That's pretty cool. But a lot of times it doesn't. And what 
where did I have that concussion? It gets back to that engineering discussion. And what do I know about what needs to be fixed? The, for the athlete that's out there, don't lose hope. And the reason why I say that is look what happens with stroke victims. In concussion, the, the brain's parts are not dead. They're not performing well because they're getting lack of blood flow. There's been compromise, compromises of the, of the uh, gray matter, but it's not dead. In the case of concussion, the areas are generally dead. So when you go to concussion protocol, what, what, what do you see? Flashcards, exercise, all sorts of touch, feel, motion skills. They're retraining the brain, retraining it, rerouting neuron pathing. We see that with Representative Gifford, who I think is a mm-hmm. poster person for that. So think about what can happen with concussion. So if it can work with stroke people who have dead matter, could in fact work with areas that are underperforming because of repeated concussion dynamics? And I think the answer is unequivocally yes. So how do you set the table for a repair piece? And I, I, we're seeing early evidence for some innovative companies who are showing that they can, in specific cases, repair areas of the brain that are reachable with their technologies. There's hope to get back. You don't have to have this sort of decline into donating your brains to the Boston University, which I think is honorable, but why, why don't you try to do something while you're alive? as well. Yeah, that, that, that really doesn't have a great deal of effect after you're done. No. <laughs> no, you know, going, I'm a lab sample, well, I don't know that I feel better. Yeah. I mean, we should do that. So I, it's yeah. not to diminish it, but how about a, let's attack the problem while you're alive, too. We spoke very forcefully about a number of things beforehand. There's some things we can't say due to regular, regulatory concerns. Yeah. And, and there's some big things coming up for you guys and some approvals perhaps coming soon. With your database and looking into the future, what effect do you think that the repository of data that you have is going to have on the medical community in the future? Oh, my gosh. This one I really get excited about. Um, and for the doctors who are out there, <clears throat> excuse me, we have an FDA process that's underway. So as they would know, um, we have to be somewhat silent about what we're doing. But suffice it to say that uh, from a credibility perspective and for us to even talk about predictive analytics, there is a very proper process to use at the FDA, and we're underway with that. And we uh, actually agree with it. So that, once successful, there's going to be waves of, of uh, FDA approval that we'll be submitting because you go down the diseases, I mentioned some earlier, and the kinds of conditions, I mentioned those earlier. So mm-hmm. the FDA is going to appropriately scrutinize those, and we want to present the data that we have. So there's waves of that. The Second thing is we now have two U.S. patents and a third applied for for the kinds of things I talked to. So we've made it through the U.S. patent process and, and have been able to take a look very deeply as to whether or not there's anybody else out there like us. And fortunately for us, the answer is there's not. And unfortunately for the population, this should have been done some time ago. So we're in a great position. But the the point I want to make is we are not the only company that can provide solutions. There are some innovative companies across the country that we're starting to work with. Um, Savonics, a spin out of some technology around neurocognitive testing out of, out of Stanford that uses statistical analysis that is a breakthrough in the neurocognitive field. We are working with them and are having patients use the Savonics process so we can cross-correlate. We are 
in the Tarot's with Somalogic in Boulder of finding protein markers that could be correlated to depression or, or Alzheimer's remains to be seen. But if we can start cross-checking what we do with proteins to see if there's a match, we've got a cutting-edge company that we're starting down that path with. There are others where we're teaming up. And I think the brain itself is so sophisticated for us to even think about having technology that can match the power and the horsepower of the brain. It's folly to think about that today. But as a team of leading innovative companies, we might be able to do a reasonable job at doing team diagnosis, team feedback, team solutions, team repair mechanisms. And I think that is the way to go uh, from my, my perspective, in order to bring all of the capabilities that we discussed to bear for an individual, it's going to take, not just in the United States, but it's going to take companies around the country who can share information instantaneously in a big data, data analytics world that can provide potentially customized care for every patient. That is super exciting. Now, you were just recently out speaking at Singularity, Correct. right? Can you talk a little bit about what the topic was and what the reaction was? Well, Singularity is this unbelievably uh, innovative, large public think tank, innovation, no holds barred, um, futurist, and um, people with unbelievably great and creative ideas who are assembled by Stanford University at Singularity University. It's a three to four day event held in San Francisco, is grown by leaps and bounds. And our role, or at least the perceived role, is that Sarascan, while we do these great things in individual brain diagnosis, the fact of the matter is we are perceived to be a leader or the leader in perfecting, pulling in information from other entities and combining that to give predictive analytics to doctors. That's the FDA process that we're working on. So, and coming out to Stanford, of which we were invited uh, to come, and wasn't we paid our way to speak, I was on a phenomenal panel with the former head of National Institute of Mental Health, who's now running a Google um, startup, uh, a PhD MD out of MIT, uh, working on a drug for Alzheimer's, and then a PhD MD MBA, um, who is Harvard, MIT, and Wharton? I, I was on classic the underachiever. Yeah, I was. I was on the panel wondering what am I doing up here, but we actually were in the cleanup position to say, look, all of these innovative doctors and their companies are producing some high potential uh, solutions for some of these diseases, and our role was to say yes, and we can take information from each of them and combine it together. So that one plus one plus one won't equal three, it'll equal 10. That when the power of that information is put together, that the doctors can take this information at their fingertips and hopefully provide better personalized medicine or more broadly, solutions for certain conditions that you know are spread among the population. And I'll use Alzheimer's, that may be a little bit of a stretch, but how can we take all of this information and combine it together? And we are in the position, because of the patents, the FDA process they're working on, to be the catalyst for that today. Sarah Scan here in Denver. It's amazing. Serometrics, a subsidiary or a branch of your company? Well, that's a great question. So, 
you know, we started, um, the value proposition was somebody comes in in deep trouble, and what do we do? And our clinicians and doctors would attack through imaging the history of the patient to see what they could come up with in terms of something that looked like a likely or reasonable uh, diagnosis and turning that over to their treating physician. So we were known as an innovation lab, if you will. Um, every time a patient came in, we kept adding that to our database. So a person comes in, hopefully something great happened in terms of diagnosis and treatment. Then the next one came in, the next one came in. And before you know it, we have over 4,000. So the aggregate information is proving to be equal to or more powerful than the individual medical care or medical diagnosis we give to the patient. The patient coming in, you know, wants to know about themselves. You know, what can they do or the mom or dad? But if we get thousands of those patients, now there may be patterns that can help with the diagnosis more rapidly and be able to kind of feather out or tease out unusual things. Unusual, what would unusual be? Um, how about Lyme's disease? I don't know if scanning or imaging can see that, doesn't appear to, but when all the data is added together and you have these symptoms, that Lyme's disease may be able to be picked off early that says, well, look, we have all this information. We've ruled out this, 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 and this. What else could it be? Oh, they do a lot of hiking in Vermont. It could be Lyme's disease. We're seeing this with the herpes. There's herpes that are not like the genital or, or cold sore herpes, but there's new derivations of herpes that reside in the brain. They're not bacterial um, in nature, but they can uh, respond um, to other uh, pharmaceuticals that sort of neutralize that her herpes side of it. Um, you know, it may, they may not be evident, but now the data is showing that the doctors should go think about that or explore that they've got a viral infection and they really might be able to be stabilized as an example. So it's unmute, and, and we brought up toxic exposure. Kids that are exposed to carbon monoxide from parents who take their kids out camping or somebody has a propane tank that they have in their house and they don't have it outside and it's slowly leaking and every day there's a little more poisoning a little more poisoning a little more poisoning and it's not evident that they went through an event but when you start backing into it what could have caused that problem and you go back and say these are the potential causes of that do you have do you have a propane tank in your basement you know it's simple questions like that sometimes begin to yield uh, the key to what was the causation of that problem. And that's where this big data starts coming into play, that it, it feathers it out and it does it instantaneously and it proposes to the doctor, go look at that. And if they don't find it, no problem. But they should be aware that there could be something else. Who's the, the consumer or client of Serometrics? Well, ultimately, it's the patient. Okay. And the patient... Um, you know, you're really trying to strive to improve their life, get them back to a stable situation, or just simply give them a diagnosis. And sometimes a diagnosis isn't great, but at least they know. So that is the ultimate uh, goal. But for, for, the, for the patient to have success, they've got to have a primary care provider. Mm -hmm. So it is hand in glove for us. So the, so the medical professional team up with the patient, it's really the it is really that relationship that we're shooting for. 
the, the doctor becomes a partner of us because they have access to the information at, that they can use to do their job better. And at the end of the day, they're trying to take care of their patient. But we're the, we, are, we are one of the key conduits for that doctor to have a great job, that doctor or medical professional to, have a, uh, to do the right job with the patient. Well, you know, I think about, you know, the, an average physician may see a certain quantity of clients and they may see you know, normal flu-like symptoms regularly, but they may not see that many concussions through the course of their career. And you guys see thousands upon thousands. Correct. It's, uh, it's approaching 2,500 right now. Yeah. And these are the chronic, these are concussions that, that st- linger. Let's say I'm, I'm gonna, I've been referred in by my physician and I come in. What are the typical questions that um, somebody coming into your facility has? What do they worry about? What do they usually ask you when they come in? Well, like all of us, you go to a doctor, your blood pressure will tend to go up <laughs> before a physical. So when you have something like a brain scan, it sounds onerous. You know, what's going to happen? Is there going to be, you know, nuclear you know, substance problems, or is there something going to happen to my brain? Is it noisy? Am I going to get claustrophobia? So our organization, our our staff is so attuned to the fears that automatically are perceived about, quote unquote, getting brain scans. So it's really put them at peace that, hey, this is not going to be too bad. It's, it, it's not going to be a horrible experience. We can coach and talk your way through it. It's not like going to the hospital and waiting in a room and suddenly you get put into a tube. It's to really start that, um, start that basis for the patient to be relaxed because when it comes to the brain, we want the brain to be performing as it is in real life, not in some sort of hyper-sensitive you know, world. So peace of mind, people have gone through it, life is going to be okay. Then um, they're going to get tested. And so we're going to do neuro and cognitive testing. I mentioned Savonics. There's going to be extensive history uh, for the patient, family history, pharmaceutical history. Um, we're going to start probing around on things that are, that are private, but are you using, what drugs are you using? And for probing is questions, not physical. Oh, sorry, yeah, thank you. <laughs> So we're going to, they're going to start asking. They want as much information because the more information you have, the secret may be in, in one of the little pieces of information. could be child abuse. could be fetal alcohol syndrome that was suffered at birth. could have been birth trauma. It could be an event where, you know, uh, something physically, they fell down the stairs. You know, there could be, they had staph infection as a wrestler in high school. There could be one piece of data that doesn't just seem to stick out, that ends up being the key to a cascade of events that causes problems. And I'd use staph infection as one. I was told that brain doesn't get infected, the blood-brain barrier stops things like staph, and what we found, au contraire, we're seeing lots of people where some derivative of some sort of staph, common staph infection you know, is getting into the brain. And it, and we don't show it, but when you go back and say, you know, I was a high school wrestler, which is a true story. I had this thing as a sophomore. Uh, it topical, it went away, um, meaning it got off my shin. And then I just started getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And as it turned out, the neurological and psychiatric diagnosis went down the wrong path. They didn't have the data 
to know that staph infection can break through. And in, and in several cases now, a, a penicillin derivative called Augmentum has been prescribed by their doctor, and, they've, and, the, and their symptoms have gone away. Now, what residual damage that they have mm-hmm. over the years it remains to be seen. But they've, they've had infections, not psychiatric symptoms, and it's that sort of stuff that ends up being aha moments and gives you goosebumps here when you walk out going, we're CSI-like. We just solved a problem. I don't solve anything. The team does. But um, it's, it's just so rewarding to know you uncovered the problem and to see the relief on patients and their parents. It's just, I mean, your heart, you, it's why I talked about earlier making a difference. You know, when, when do you get a chance to do something like that? You know, I think about the toll takers that stand in the booths next to automobiles that well, get I even thought about that. gas all day long. You know, I think about them every time I go by them in the Kansas Turnpike and go, they get a snoot full of yeah. unburned fuel every time a car takes out of there. You know, and you just think about, you know, the level, you know, I, I'm former military as well. Yeah. I can remember sitting in the diesel plume on top of the track to stay warm in the winter. You know, and that can't be real good for you. Might explain my behavior some. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, to, to I guess, bring this to a close, because I think we're going to dig into some other topics on another podcast. Um, parting advice to, you know, everybody's a parent, I suppose, or a sibling or a child of somebody, you know, as they're out there going like, is, is this for me? What advice, parting advice would you offer them? I think it's, critical that you have a great relationship with your treating doctor or whomever and that that doctor spends time in depth asking the kinds of questions, asking the dynamics around a concussion, asking about life experiences and infection, you know, talking about lifestyle. Does your child stay on a, you know, a iPhone eating Cocoa Puffs till two in the morning and expect them to perform at school, and the school says they're ADHD. Get the doctor or the medical professional to do more personalized medicine. And I know that's hard today, but try to figure out as much as you can. And if the common sense and multiple approaches to fix the problem don't work, don't go down psychotropic drugs. There are, there are choices. If, in fact, you have a problem with your knee and you, it's an ACL, you will get an MRI or CT. If you have a bone break, you will get an X-ray before they go in and start doing things. If you have a susceptibility or belief to have cancer, they will do a PET CT. So don't let the doctors start treating it before they know what's wrong or have most available information. And I simply today wouldn't allow any of my relatives to go down a path where you start throwing drugs at a problem. And I I don't want to suggest that there aren't pharmaceuticals that do a good job. They do. We are such a pill, pill, pill. And it isn't the doctors prescribing it. The parents want a quick fix. So the parents even push for it. And it doesn't fix problems. And other problems come up. I can't tell you how many multiple med people come in here. I'm talking 12 meds. And sometimes they shop doctors, but one med, you know, they go on lithium, then they do another med to counteract the lithium, then they can't sleep, and then they aren't asleep, and then they're on a stimulant. And pretty soon, trying to figure out what's wrong, you've got this fog of pharmaceuticals. 
there. That happens way more than what it should. And then obviously you've got the opioid issue that's cropping up as a result of dependency on drug. But don't go down that path. There are choices. And there's QEEG, there's QPET, there's QSPEC, this Q meaning quantitative. So get this quantitative analysis along with what's in my blood, what's in my urine, what does the test show, is there a family history, was there an event? And when you put all that on the table, then you have a chance to try to attack the problem in the most logical, sequential way that makes most sense and is most proven. And generally, that's not masking the problem with pharmaceuticals. And, it could, and, and again, it could be lifestyle changes. Yeah, spend at least as much time on this as you do planning your vacation. Sure, you do. An, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Um, you know, well, John, I, I appreciate it. I'm a fan. Uh, this has been fun, and, and I look forward to getting together again. Yeah, I do too. It's great. It's a great topic, and thank you for having us on the show. You it's bet, awesome. John.